words I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 15 through 23, and we'll specifically look at verses 21 through 23 this morning. He is the image of the invisible, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile unto himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we love your word because it sustains us. As you say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, by your word, the heavens were created in a moment. And through your word, Lord, you brought about new life in every Christian here, taking them from bondage to sin and a heart that only sought to worship its own desires, pursue its own interests. And you caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through your word, through your powerful word. Lord, we look to your word week after week because we know its power and we know our need. And so we pray that you would unleash its power over the next hour, that it would, that it would continue to conform us and strengthen us and, and deepen our faith and, and encourage us. Lord, you know the needs of every person here. But we also want to particularly pray for, for anybody who's here who does not yet know you. Lord, that you would open their eyes to see that the, the very dangerous condition they remain in. And they would see that the, the immense hope and the immense opportunity that is offered to them in what Christ has done on the cross. That you would cause them to be born again, even as you have cause so many of us to trust in you as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How would you answer if a friend were to ask you this question? What difference does it make 
if I were to trust in Christ? How, what impact would that have on my life? Why should I trust in Christ? And assuming that it's an honest question, as they look at all the different religions and philosophies and the different pursuits of people throughout the world, and they look at your life and the life of what they presume other Christians live, and they genuinely want to know, why should I trust in Christ? How would you answer that question? The French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal chose to answer the question by considering both the costs and the benefits of trusting Christ. He argued that if a person believes in God and God actually does exist, then that person would eventually gain infinite happiness. But if a person does not believe in God exists, then they would receive infinite suffering. Now, on the other hand, if a person believes in God and God doesn't exist, then that person may receive some finite disadvantages in wanting to follow Christ with their life. And if a person, if God does not exist and a person does not choose to follow Christ, then they might receive some finite advantages because they're not held back by God's commands. And Pascal summarized his wager this way. Let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God exists. And let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. And if you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. So this is how Pascal tried to explain the cost benefits as one should, might think through it. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, why should I trust in Christ? What difference would that make for me? I believe that this would be his answer as he presents it to us in verses 21 and 23 of Colossians chapter 1. When a person trusts in Christ, they go from alienation to reconciliation. And then they will eventually go through a miraculous transformation, even in their flesh, if they continue in the faith. And those who won't trust in Christ will not receive such benefits. And this, of course, is the outline before us. Christians were alienated. They're now reconciled. They will be transformed, but they must continue in the faith. And you'll, you'll notice... The, uh, the first three major words, alienated, reconciled, and transformed, begin with A, R, and T. And so the, the word art could serve as a helpful acronym for you if you're thinking through, how would I go about sharing the gospel to a person? Well, you would begin by explaining that person's alienation from God. Then you could explain how reconciliation would take place. And then, of course, the great hope of future transformation. That is offered if they continue in the faith. So I present this to you even for your help in constructing a, a simple outline and presenting your faith. Now, the transition from the previous section, you'll notice, is marked from this this focus on Christ in verses 15 through 20. And now 
to the effects of Christ upon Christians in verses 21 to 23. Notice the change of the focus on what Christ is, who Christ is, to now what he has done for Christians. The previous passage focused on the identity of Christ and his grand purpose to reconcile all things to himself. And now verses 20 to 23 narrow the focus of that work of reconciliation upon the Colossians in particular, and by implication, all Christians. So these verses, 21 to 23, are all about the effect of Christ upon the lives of Christians in the past, now in the present, and what will be their future. So let's look, first of all, at the Christians' past. They were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Paul says in verse 21. If you, it's the connection, buddy, if you want to adjust that. That's why it's going in and out. But it's okay if, it's, if it doesn't work, that's fine too. But Verse 21, you'll note, describes again the Christian's past. And really, by, by implication, the state of every unbeliever. The Greek word translated alienated means to be separated, ripped apart, estranged, ruptured, divorced from God. And Paul's point is that there is a permanent, impassable, unscalable divide between unbelievers and God that separates them permanently. Now, when you might recall that when communist Russia conquered Berlin at the end of World War II, they set up a dividing wall in the, the city of Berlin, separating the east from the west. And then families were permanently divided. And then that wall at place was 12 feet high. And it was approximately 12 miles long. It had 302 guard towers, 3,000 attack dogs, and 55,000 landmines were planted. It was reinforced by barbed wire, spikes, metal gratings, bunkers, even vehicles were placed there as obstacles. In short, the Berlin Wall was virtually impassable. But the separation that is alienating men from God is not due to an outside agent creating that separation. Because men willfully construct that wall. We are more like the communist soldiers who built the wall and then remain guarding that wall to make sure that that separation continues. We don't want to defect. We are devoted enemies. And that's made clear in the next phrases. We are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So men war against God both in their thinking as well as in what they do, their actions. So even though we are commanded and we are created actually to glorify God, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to live for Him, we just as intently rebel against God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength. Rather than loving Him, we hate Him because we don't, want him to tell us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. 
live for ourselves. We don't like any authority interfering with our own desires and ambitions. And therefore, any authority that would is an enemy. In J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy world, he explains that the, that the orcs that existed in Middle-earth were originally elves that had been captured by the Dark Lord Morgoth. And he took the elves and he uh, twisted them and distorted them into the corrupt beings that they were. And in, in, in this, Tolkien was actually picturing the effect of the fall upon mankind. In other words, men, we men are like orcs. We were once glorious and created for a purpose that was glorious, and yet we have now become so corrupted by evil, we now serve the very opposite purpose for which we are created. We were created to glorify God and enjoy it forever, and now that's the last thing we want to do. Now we want to glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever. And so we are hostile in mind. That, that word hostile means to be opposed to, at war with. We are enemies of God. And, and here, notice that Paul locates the hostility in the realm of the mind first. In our thinking. In the way we rationalize things. In our attitudes and thoughts. Frankly, this is why so many institutions, universities that are established in order to pursue truth, goodness, and beauty, after a short period of time, not, don't teach truth, truth, goodness, and beauty. Rather, they cho- teach folly and filth and immorality. Even the best and brightest minds in our world, at the core, are hostile to God. Because they will not submit to Him. And this hostility in our thinking is actually best clarified in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. I would invite you to turn there and notice how it describes the effects of the fall on the mind and heart of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Notice that it, it, that it reveals human sin is great in its inwardness, even in the thoughts of the heart, also in its inherence, the intention of the thoughts, the very forming of those thoughts are sinful. Its exclusiveness, look, look, they were only evil. And in their continuousness, continually, exclusively evil, Continually evil. That's the state of men's heart as an effect of sin entering the world. And Paul clarifies in Colossians 1.20, however, that it's not just in our thinking that we're rebellious against God, but also in our actions as well. The sin that directs our mind and our heart, therefore manifests itself in our evil actions. And this is what Jesus says when he, when he said, you can know a tree by its fruit. You know the state of the heart by what comes out of it. If somebody says, speaks filth, they have a filthy heart, filthy mind. 
Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, again, sin in the heart and mind will manifest itself in a person's actions. As Paul told Titus, if you turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul told Titus, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And then a few paragraphs later, he writes in chapter 3, verse 2, or sorry, verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's, he's describing what Christians once were like before they were transformed. And then Ephesians 2, 3, similarly, Paul writes, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. His point is, is we are immensely hostile to God in our heart and mind because we want to gratify every fleshly desire that comes across our way. We're slaves of sin. And therefore, men are under the wrath of God because they're at war with God in every aspect of their being. Now, a, a person might understandably say when when you hear that statement, I'm not at war with God. I have nothing against God. In fact, I would just rather God just let me be and let me do my own thing. Live the way I want. I have nothing against God or Jesus command. I just want to follow my own path. Well, fair enough. But imagine a class of students that had the same mentality. A teacher comes in and asks the students to take out their textbooks and begin reading. Pretty simple, straightforward commandment. And then one student interrupts and says, reading is stupid. Then another student just gets up and walks out. Another smiles, opens his book and, and pretend it appears to be reading. And yet instead of reading the textbook, he's actually just reading a dirty magazine that he's placed inside of it. Another student just puts their head on the desks and sleeps. Now, all of these students are just choosing their own path. They're just doing what they feel like doing. But if any of us were in such a classroom, we would we would realize this is a class of rebels. Because they just simply want to do what they want to do. And the same situation can be played out in any home. In any factory. In any military unit. What we might justify to ourselves as just independent thinking is nothing but rebellion at its core. And we need to recognize God is not just our teacher. He's not just our authority. God is our creator. He is our sovereign. He is our king. 
He's the one who gives us life and breath. And so we don't only owe him our allegiance, but we owe him our lives. We owe him our worship. And yet, even though God is the one that we choose to sin against, he is the one that we are rebelling against. He is our enemy. Yet even so, because of his great love for us, he gave his only son. So that whoever should believe in him might not perish but have eternal life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John three sixteen and 17. And this, of course, is what Paul, what Paul speaks to in verse 22. Christians are now reconciled to God. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Note that word reconciled the same verse that sorry same word that's used in verse 20 it means to bring back into order to fix that which is broken to, to go from being divorced to being remarried from being an alien to then being a citizen from rebellion to submission from being a vagrant to then being an adopted child That's what it means to be reconciled or ways that reconciliation might look in various aspects of life. And notice the means of reconciliation. His body of flesh by his death. This speaks again to the fact that the Son of God needed to take on flesh, become a human being in order to be a means of of reconciliation. That reconciliation between God and man that could not be accomplished without him taking on flesh and dying. That barrier that separated men from God could not be abolished unless he took on flesh, became a physical human being, and was killed and died in our place, bearing our penalty. The wages of sin is death. That means that any time any sin ever takes place, death must take place. That's what the the purpose of sacrificial animals was for. What it was trying to teach was the wages of sin is death. So any time an Israelite sinned, the only way that they could have that sin atoned for, that they could be reconciled back to God, is if something died. Sin always results in death. The wages of sin is death. And so in order for us to be reconciled to God, a perfect being needed to die in our place. And yet because he, Christ was God, and because He was without sin completely, His death was sufficient to pay for all of our sins and their complete cost. And so the, the present effect of Christ upon believers is that they are no longer enemies with God, but they are now reconciled, fully reconciled. All of a Christian's sins have been paid for. In fact, Paul affirms this in the next chapter. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You who were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God 
made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And because our sin has been fully paid for, there is now nothing No sin that can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of Christ, our Lord. And if you're a Christian here today, Your current state before God is reconciled. Even if just hours ago you committed some heinous sin. Even if, even before coming to Christ, you had done things that you hope nobody ever finds out about. If you are a Christian... You have put your trust in Christ. You stand reconciled before God. Because there is nothing more you can do. Galatians 3.1 Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being justified in the flesh? No. There is nothing anybody can do to add to what Christ has done. All that could be done for you to pay for your sins has already been done. And so even if you have sinned multiple times this morning and you are burdened with grief and shame, your status before God is reconciled. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the full wrath. And we stand forgiven at the cross. So this is our present state. We are reconciled. Then verse of, the rest of verse 22 speaks to our future state. The future effect of Christ on Christians. He's done this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This speaks to, thirdly, that Christians will be transformed. When I look at that word present, to present, it it speaks of the day when we will stand before God and need to give an account for everything that we have done in the flesh. All of our life. And this verse demonstrates that Christ's ultimate goal for us is that when we come into the presence of God, we would be completely like Him, holy, blameless, and above reproach, free from sin and free from all of its consequences. And this, is again, is clarified in the three synonymous words that follow. The first, of course, is holy, that we'd be holy. As you know, that, that word means to be set apart for God. It's the opposite of being alienated from God. See, we were once separated from God. Now we have become set apart for God. In fact, the word saint, which is the primary word that the New Testament used to describe Christians, 
The word saint is rooted in this word holy. They are holy ones. It's the noun form of this adjective holy. And so in one sense, Christians have already been declared holy. But we know that this verse is not speaking of our being declared holy, but it's actually speaking of our future holiness in the flesh. We are positionally holy now, but this is speaking of our final state. When we finally stand before Christ in judgment, Christians will not only be declared holy, they will actually, in the flesh, be holy in every aspect of their essence. We will be characterized with the same character that characterizes Christ. So consider this as an analogy. If God were an ocean, holiness would be wetness. Imagine being thrown into the ocean that is God. To be holy is to be soaked in the ocean of God's holiness, His wetness. Soaked in the ocean of His nature. But notice, not just on the surface, but that, that holiness seeping into every molecular vestige of our being. His glorious nature permeating all of us so that we would be so glorious in holiness, in physical holiness, that when any other mortal would see us, they would be tempted to worship us. Just as some saints were tempted to worship angels when they appeared before Him. We will be made holy like the angels in Scripture. The word without blemish is a word used to describe sacrificial animals. Where there could be no abnormality, no flaw, no fault if they were going to be offered on the altar. And so because of this, that the word that's used here came to be uh, descriptive of moral purity. Blamelessness, being free from sin. One day we will be free from sin, just like the refiner's fire purifies gold. It removes the dross, all the impurities from the gold so that gold is pure. Likewise, one day we will be free from every dross of sin in our being. And we will also be without reproach. the, The first word, without blemish, speaks to being free from sin. Without reproach speaks to being free from any charge of sin. And consider that. I imagine that one of the worst nightmares that many people and even Christians have is that one day people will find out some of the wicked and foolish things that we have done in our past. The things that we are most ashamed of. We fear, what if people know what I'm really like? The evil things that I've said. What if somebody brings up some folly from my past? Those, those things become public knowledge. Well, if you are in Christ, you can rest at perfect ease. 
Because one day you will be without reproach. Nobody will ever bring any accusation of sin against you. Why? Well, the answer is given in Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If God says you are free from sin, you are free. Who will bring a charge? None is the answer. On that day, God will be able to say of us the same thing that he said to Satan in the book of Job. Have you considered my servant Dan? Doug? Have you considered my servant Nellie? Leo? Have you considered my servant Rico? Forgetting your name. (laughs) Joel. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. One day, God will be able to say that to you and every demonic being that surrounds him. And it will be absolutely true. Christians will be transformed. But they must continue in the faith. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice that after presenting the past and the present and the future state of all Christians, Paul presents one qualification. If. Now, I want you to know this if is not like the if that Cinderella's stepmother gave her when she asked if she could go to the ball. Sure, you can go to the ball if you get all of your work done and if you can find something suitable to wear. Paul is not saying this if as if he's adding some additional qualification of what Christians must do. Know that the if is actually a sign of confirmation that that person truly is a believer. That's the word that follows. Indeed. The idea is, if indeed you truly are saved, you will continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So let's look at the first of the this string of words that he ties together. The, the first word is continue in. It, it means to persevere. This is where we get the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints from. More helpfully, I think the doctrine is called eternal security. But the doctrine asserts that once a person is saved, if they're truly saved, then they'll always be saved. Nothing can steal their salvation. A couple of verses that teach this doctrine, I think, that are helpful. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. John 10.27 and 28. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's very emphatic. The point he's making is if they're my sheep, they're not being taken away from me. And of course, Romans 8, 35, we've already seen who shall separate us from the love of God. Point being, nothing ever can. And so if Paul believed that a person could not lose his salvation, though, why then does he says, if indeed you continue? Why the if? I mean, shouldn't he say, because you will continue giving him this assurance? I mean, along with this, why all the other warning passages in Scripture where the apostles warn people not to fall away from the faith? Well, the reason for these warning passages isn't because these apostles, these writers of Scripture doubted eternal security. It's because they weren't naive to the fact that many of the people they were writing to were professed believers. But in reality, they were not genuine believers. Right in every church. Theoretically speaking, in every church, there are. Genuine believers, people who have been genuinely born again, who truly want to love God with all their heart, soul and mind and strength. They want to live for him and they want to repent from every sin. But there are also people who are just hypocrites. Who are doing it because they just. Want to feel good every Sunday, have a sense that God is for them. Or it's because that's just what they've always grown up doing, but they've never actually been transformed. Their heart has never really been changed. They still live in, the, in their heart for the very same things that the, everybody else in the world lives for. And they, the, the writers of Scripture knew this. And therefore, when they write to a church, they warn those knowing there will be some that, have not, that are not yet genuinely saved. There will be some that fall away. Consider 1 John 2.19. In fact, I would make a cross-reference in your Bible, if, it, if you don't have one, from Colossians 1.22 to 1 John 2.19. John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It's the continuing in the faith that demonstrates that a person truly is safe. And of course, if a person fall away, falls away, it's because they never were. And notice what Paul's, Paul fears might draw a person away. He says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. His concern is that there may be some in the church of Colossae that might put their hope in something else besides Christ. Could be human wisdom, some some new religious teaching that has now become popular, a, a new philosophical fad, a cultural trend. Maybe maybe they realize that being a Christian is actually making life harder. It's not making life easier. Or maybe they realize you know what? They really do want to continue to pursue their lusts and the prohibitions given in Scripture, the commands given in Scripture is not something they want to obey. They would rather have their mistress 
than salvation. Jesus had the same concern. And that was manifested in the parable of the sower. Right? The, The seed that was sown on the rocky ground, remember? It depicted those who hear the word and they... They immediately receive it with joy, but they don't have any root in themselves. And so they endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And then there was the seed that was thrown among thorns, thorns. And that depicted those who hear the word. But then the cares of the world And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come and choke the word so it no longer has any life. And they prove unfruitful. And Jesus was illustrating this fact because he knew it to be true. He knew God knows there will be those who at least initially demonstrate a desire to want to follow him like Judas But then when just a little bit of money or a little bit of sex or a little bit of fame is offered to them, they go chasing that bait and they are led astray. True believers are those that continue in the faith. And notice that the means of continuing the faith is actually given to us in the next phrases. Stable and steadfast. Now, these two words are being used metaphorically. They're actually building terms. Paul is depicting Christians as a building here, much like he did in Ephesians 2. Now, this isn't very apparent in the ESV, which translates these words steady and steadfast. So I actually prefer the New American Standard here, which translates these words as firmly established and steadfast. And this is actually a good example for those who are wondering what... What's, why, what are the differences in various translations? These are both really good translations. But the New American Standard kind of wants to keep that metaphor of the building clear. And so it translates it firmly established. It's a little more literal. And yet the ESV is a little more dynamic, conveying the idea behind the metaphor. That, that what Paul is exhorting them to is to, to not fall away from Christ. So again, the ESV translates this stable and steadfast. That first word, stable, means to be founded upon, to be grounded, to be be laid upon a foundation. The second word, steadfast, refers to that, the ongoing stability on account of being on a solid foundation. So he says, be a building, be a church that clings to Christ, its solid foundation. And the result will be you, you are firmly established. Keep clinging to Christ. Don't throw away your eternal security on some passing fad or allurement. You can imagine a man inheriting this magnificent mansion by the sea that, that's up on a cliff. A cliff of solid granite. And after living there for a while, he kind of gets tired of having to travel down the cliff to go surfing and to, to lay on the beach, to go swim in the water. And so he decides that he's going to have that mansion moved off the granite foundation and brought down to the sand and placed on a foundation of shifting sand. And we all know what's going to happen in time. 
that house is going to fall and great will be its fall. Paul's warning here is very relevant to the Colossian Christians because some were being tempted to believe that Christ was not truly God or that his his work on the cross was not really sufficient to pay for all their sins, that there must be something more they need to do to add to it. Others are being tempted to believe that they needed to trust in Jewish traditions. And Paul's going to address these errors in the next chapter, Colossians 2. But it's wise for us to consider, if that's what was drawing the Colossians away from Christ, what might it be that draws people in church today away from Christ? Because we all know some famous Christians who have walked away from Christ. Some of you know have family members who were once professed believers who have walked away from Christ. Brothers and sisters, reality is there's probably people here today who will walk away from Christ. I pray that that will not be the case. But we must ask the question, what is it that might draw a person away from Christ today? Cultural fads? Being cool? Wanting to be relevant? Respected? It could be just some new crazy philosophy that comes up that seems really attractive. Economic prosperity. Obviously, it could just be lusts, drugs, sex, alcohol. In short, really, it's the same thing that was facing in Colossians. It's worldliness. This is why John gave his warning in John 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Brothers and sisters, this threat is not anemic. It is not weak. Sin will destroy you if you give it an inch. You must be putting sin to death. In your mind, in your heart, in your actions, every place you see sin, you must kill it. It's not worth the risk. Don't be naive. It might be you next who falls away from Christ. I'd like to say that nobody ever has, but you know that's not true. And you want to know, how does that happen? How are people, why would they throw something away on some filthy person Some stupid opportunity. It's because they weren't putting sin to death in their mind. Brothers and sisters, it could be you. It will be you. Unless you are putting sin to death. And clinging to Christ as your ultimate hope. The final two phrases Paul wraps up his creed about Christ. He says it's been proclaimed, referring to the gospel, in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I think what immediately stands out to me in this is why does he bring up the fact that this has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven? Well, the reason he does so is to emphasize what he's been talking about. Christ's great cosmic plan to reconcile this destructed, sorry, this destroyed world that is now defined by death and decay and horror. 
He's going to remake it to be purified, transformed as it was originally designed to do. And even better than that, he's going to make this world better than even Eden ever was. And that news that that's going to happen is now being proclaimed to all creation. The work has begun is the idea. It's to emphasize Christ's great cosmic plan. And that centers in the redemption and the future resurrection of Christians. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but go back and read Romans 8. The creation eagerly awaits with great longing the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait to see you glorified. Because it will get the benefits. We are the capstone of creation in Christ. So verses 15 and 18 demonstrate that Christ was the Lord of overall creation. 19 through 20 demonstrated Christ is Lord over the new creation that he's bringing about. And then 20 to 23 zeroes in specifically on believers and explains how that applies to Christians. We were once hostile. But now we've been reconciled and we will be one day completely transformed if we continue in the faith. And Paul's final statement in which where he says, in which I, Paul, became a minister, then serves as a transition to his aims as an apostle. And we'll look at that next week. Please pray with me. Oh, Father. It's almost too horrible to believe that that there may be someone here that would fall away from you because they're not truly born again. And Father, I pray that that would never happen. But that even now, you you would open their eyes if such a person is here. That you would open their eyes to see it's not worth it. There's nothing this world can offer that is worth sacrificing eternal glory for eternal suffering. Lord, that they would see the truth of your word, the beauty of Christ. They would long for holiness. You would give them such affections, opening their heart to see what is really real. So that they would never fall away. Lord, just as you've been merciful to us to save us from that condition, we ask that you would save Anyone here who is not a follower of you and make them a follower of you even now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.